our sixth sermon on the book of Job, and we are on chapter 8 this morning. So we are slightly ahead, which is good. And as I said, we, we're not going to be, I, I'm, I won't be able to preach like John Calvin, who preached 159 sermons on the book of Job. But we, we're getting there. Um, so, so, so far, thus far, we have explored um, this person, this wealthy and righteous person named Job. And in a blink of an eye, he lost everything, including his health. And we saw how his three friends came and tried to console him. The first one, the, the oldest, Eliphaz, has spoken and, and Job has responded. And today we're going to look at another friend of Job, the second friend of Job, named Bildad. And he will speak to us. And we're going to look at what he, the messages uh, that Bildad spoke to Job. And the hardest thing about the book of Job, to study the book of Job is this. If we do not understand the context of Job, we would have agreed with everything that Job's friends say. We would have in agreement with Eliphaz, we'll be in agreement with Bildad today, and, and Jophar and Elihu, if we don't understand the context, because they... Their theology, their understanding of God is so right that it can be dangerous if you don't read carefully and understand the context from, from what we, we, we know from the book of Job. So who is Bildad? Before we, we, we go deeper into what Bildad says, Bildad is the younger version of Eliphaz. So Eliphaz, they say it's the oldest, and but somehow Bildad is also the harsher his words are harsh a lot more harsher than uh, than Eliphaz it's straight to the point and there's even there's a tone a condescending tone in Bildad's advice or message to Job so when we look at that if we ask ourselves are, are Job's friends providing us with a model on how we can comfort and encourage our suffering friend the answer is no don't don't use their model their method of how you would or how we should encourage uh, a suffering friend because even though their theology sounds right the application has missed the mark um, so how 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 is bill that is harsher and and kind of in a sense the tone is worse than than Eliphaz. Well, just, just look at this in, in, in verse 2. Job 8 verse 2. Let me read to you. How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? We do not know, we, we do not need to know a lot about poetry. That That is not a compliment. Okay, when, when he says, you know, uh, and the words of your mouth be a great wind, uh, that it's not nice. Unlike, unlike, well, when, when, remember last week, uh, two weeks ago, actually, when we look at the words of Eliphaz, Eliphaz started by complimenting Job, like, Job, you, you've been a helpful friend to others. You encourage others. No such things found here with Bildad. He went straight in and, and said, you know, Job, your words from your mouth are like a great wind. Um, if Eliphaz's words were empty, as what Job says, you know, your advice are empty, Eliphaz, Bildad's words were outright false when it comes to his application to Job. 
he accused Job of children, of sinning against God. Let's look at in verse 4. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. So we know all, all of ten children of Job died in a blink of an eye. And we know also from the context that it is due to not none of their faults or anyone's sins. But Bill that says it's because of your kids, your children have sins against God, that they what this is what happened to them. So it's it's not only his harsher, his applications outright wrong. So we could say Bildad is not a compassionate friend. Rather, he's, he's more of a disinterested professor towards his suffering friend, Job. And he employed three strategies. If you, if you read carefully, there are three strategies here. Bildad is a very smart and uh, a, a learned person. So he employed three strategies. He, he used logic. If you can look at that from verse 3 to 7. He said, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? And then he went on to employ logic. He says, if your children have sinned, if you will seek God, if you are right and pure and upright. So he, he employed logic. and said, like, because of this logic, therefore I can conclude this. Like your children have sinned against God. And not only he employed logic from verse 8 to 10, he showed that he also employed tradition or history. So he have knowledge of history and tradition. He's a well-learned man. He said, verse 8, for example, for, for um, verse 9, let me read from verse 9. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow. He valued tradition. He valued knowledge from those who come before him. And finally, he used also analogies from from nature so he learned from the nature so he's a good student of science as well uh, that's from verse 11 can papyrus grow where there is no marsh can reed flourish where there is no water he's a smart man and he's observant he's logical he's well learned he values collective knowledge and uh, i'm reminded by a uh, by a saying, a quite a popular saying from a George Santayana, a Spanish philosopher. He famously said this, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. That is so true, isn't it? And, and Bildad's believed that and lives by that value, by that precept. Perhaps that is our precept as well. And how we see Bildad's value, knowledge and, and logic. And... Most, I like to say before we get onto the 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 points of this, out of most of my sermons, if not all my sermons, God speak to me first through the words um, of God. He preached to me first. Sometimes even as I preaching it, God is preaching to me. But today's sermon preached to me the most. How? Well, because I'm very much like Builder in that I value logic and knowledge um, to the point that I I go on to earn four degrees. Um, you know, I have a bachelor degree, I have a graduate diploma, and two master's degree. 
uh, I value knowledge, I value logic, and if, if it's not for my wife, Poppy, who reminded me that she needs to complete her study and warned me to not continue studying before she finished, I would probably still studying today. So I, I you know, God speaks to me through, through Bildad's words. How, uh, very much. And, and perhaps you are like me. Perhaps you are, you are someone who value knowledge and logic and it to the point that sometimes we cannot stand people who are illogical, who does not make sense in, in how they run their life, how they operate their life, or ignorant people, right? There's not, for me, I mean, at least God speak to me, like, I mean, how short fuse I can be towards those who are ignorant or illogical. So God speak to me uh, through our word, the word of God this morning. So this is what we're going to look at uh, today in regards to knowledge, in regards to uh, logic and knowledge. Because the culture that we live in today, I'm sure you all aware, values this thing as well. And one of the attack that the, the, the secular world is has against Christianity is that Christianity is illogical and ignorant. The people who believe in, in this ancient book, they say, are a bunch of bigots, right? And the world believes in that, believe in logic and, and knowledge. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at under three headings. The first one is the importance of knowledge. The second one is the limitations of knowledge. And finally, the God of knowledge. The importance of knowledge, the limitations of knowledge, and the God of knowledge. So first thing, the importance of knowledge. So we have looked at how Bildad understands this, and he loves logic and knowledge. He argues his case on the importance of knowledge by employing two things, by, by two examples. The first one is that our life is short, and the second one is that our memory is poor. Okay? So, the importance of knowledge, builders argue, argue for us, I think, convincingly, if we do not understand Job's context, right? If we do not know that Job has no sins, we would probably agree with Bildad on this. So, all life is short. There's a saying, you probably have heard this, learn from people's mistake because life is too short to make them all yourselves. Have you heard that? And... It's true, isn't it? Imagine if we, if we need to experience everything ourselves for us to learn from. Two things will happen. Either we'll die prematurely because we just try everything dangerous because we don't learn from people's mistake, or we will not learn very much at all. Imagine in order for us to learn all the vast body of knowledge on science and technology in order for us to learn is for us to explore and discover it ourselves. We wouldn't learn very much. We need to learn from people who have come before us. Much of our knowledge come from people who have come before us, who are a lot smarter than us. And that's how we learn. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we have to do that instead of just uh, ex expect to learn from self discovery alone and we we learn from people's successes from people's failures that okay they try that and it didn't work 
they did that and it killed them so we don't do that so we learn from past mistakes and successes uh, instead of to do everything or discover them ourselves and the reason is this is tradition this is where we learn from tradition from history and this is where uh, Bill that says in in verse 8 to 10 I'm gonna read to you verses 8 to 10 for inquire please of bygone ages and consider what the fathers have searched out for we are but of yesterday and know nothing for our days on earth are a shadow will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding build that what is Bill that saying? Bill that saying is that our days are like a shadow. Shadow are not permanent. They change quickly as the sun moves. Out of so many, uh, out of the people of the world, I mean, people, Melbourneian like us, should know this better. We have four seasons in a day. Shadow don't last for us. They are not permanent. And Bill that say that's that's our days. Our days are like, our days are short. Uh, unpredictable like like shadow so in order for us so this realization of that our life is short we we therefore build us and we must value tradition we must value knowledge from from those people who have come before us so second thing um, that build that used to show that the importance of knowledge is that our life um, our, our memory is poor we, not only that, we, 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 our life is short, our memory is poor as well. And he says that in um, 11 to 13. I'm going to read to you. Job 8, 11 to 13. Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of those of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. Papyrus in in the ancient day, in ancient time, are very useful. They are like you know the one one of the top commodities. It, it makes everything. They make it, it can make everything. And and one of the most useful stuff that they use papyrus for are writing uh, stuff to papers and things like that. But Bill that says. Regardless how papyrus, how useful papyrus are, they need a constant supply, source of water for them to survive. Without it, they will quickly perish. And he used this and say, use, see how his logical mind and use analogies from the nature, you know, his scientific mind. He says, just like us, you know, if, if, if without God, without, if we forget God, we will perish like papyrus without water. We may think that we're useful like papyrus, but if we forget God, we will perish. And that is true. That is good theology. However, he applied so badly towards Job because we know Job did not forget God. In fact, when we look at uh, chapter 1, we see how Job offers sacrifice daily to God in case one of his children inadvertently cursed against God. So, so Bildad says, don't forget God. You must have forgotten God. 
That's why you experience things. But what does it mean to forget God? I don't want to take this for uh, granted that every you know I don't want to make an assumption that everyone know what it is to forget God because to forget God does not mean we have a lapse of memory that we don't oh God who who is God? I don't think it means that way. And to forget God is a lot deeper than uh, just have a lapse of memory, like we have amnesia or loss of memory, and we don't know who God is. So let's. So I'm gonna show you all of us in in two from two texts. First one is from the Ten Commandments. Uh, that's Exodus twenty. If you turn to the Old Testament, Exodus twenty, verse two to three. So this is the first commandment. Exodus twenty two to three, and God spoke all these words, saying. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It is often misunderstood that the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. But if you read that carefully, Look at your text again. If you have your Bible in front of you, look at it again. That's not the beginning of the first commandment. It says this, and God spoke all these words, saying, "Comma and open quote." This is the beginning to show. This is the beginning of the first commandment that says, "I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." That's the first part of first commandment. What, what, is, what is the Lord saying here? What is God saying here is that He is God. You shall have no other gods before me because I have brought you out of slavery and make you my people. Therefore, do not forget. Remember this truth that I am your God who brought you out of Egypt. Remember. So that's the first commandment. And second text that I want to look at is a famous, well, it's, it's famous, but it's uh, it's it's important. Uh, a Jewish prayer called Shema Israel. So that's from Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy, chapter six, verse four to nine. Deuteronomy six, four to nine. Shema Israel, which literally means "Hear, O Israel." Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and you shall be as a front between your eyes you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates Deuteronomy 6 4 to 9 the Shema Israel is given so that God's people remember the Lord that they do not forget yet we'll see uh, soon how God's people still forget him even even after all these warnings, the first commandment and, and Shema Israel, which is a very important prayer and commands for, for the people of God, 
yet the people of God still forget him. In what way? As I say, it's not in a way that they have lapse of memory and, and suddenly wake up one morning and, and did not know who God is. It's not that. So let's look at Judges. This is, this is the example of how the people of God has forgotten him. From Judges 2, 8 to 13, I, I warn you that there are a lot of scriptures today. Judges 2, 8 to 13. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servants of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him with the boundaries of his inheritance in Tina Heresh, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So Joshua has died, generation with Joshua has died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. They forgot the Lord and, work, and the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord and, and the God of their fathers who had brought them, here you go, and, and who, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. It only take one generation for the people of God to forget who he is and what he has done. After Joshua and his generation died, the next generation arose and forgot what God has done. In, in Joshua, we read that after them, they did not know the Lord or the work that the Lord has done, had done for Israel. That's the exact, the precise commandments that the Lord has commanded. Do not forget that I'm the Lord God who brought you out of slavery from Egypt. And because of their forgetfulness, they did not remember the history of their forefathers. They did evil before God. In a sense, um, if you understand forgetting the Lord in, in this way, then forgetting the Lord is a lot more common, isn't it? Because it's not amnesia. It's just that we forgot that what God has done, the work of the Lord. So it's far more common than we think. And the Bible is full of stories, uh, full of stories like this. So we must remember that the, our forgetfulness of the, our history, God's history, can lead us to idolatry. Okay? So what does it mean then for us, for you and me, to forget God. If, if you know, so the first point is the importance of knowledge. How about if we don't have this knowledge that we forget God? Well, we forget God. Uh, how how does it look like? We forget God when um, when God is no longer the most treasured to us. So that's how we forget God. If God is the is not the most treasured or most loved in our lives, that means we have forgotten God. And that's what happened to the people of God, the Israelites. It's not that we forget God completely. We still go to church. We still come together and worship together. We sing and we read our Bible and we pray. It's not that we forgot God in that way. But God is no longer precious in our lives. Not the most treasured. 
Perhaps he was once upon a time. Perhaps he was when we first met him and when we first know God. But not anymore. He's no longer the most treasured in our life. And the Bible categorized that as we have forgotten the Lord. And that will lead us to idolatry in our life. So in other words, to forget God is when we dethrone God off His throne and we put other thing or other person in place of God on that throne. So how do we forget God? How, what does it look like when, when God is no longer the most precious or the most treasure to us? I just want to give a couple of examples, quick example. First is when our career is more important and has not got off his throne. Our career has taken precedence. Our investment in our career takes so much more effort than anything else. And secondly, if, if, we are, if we have a family like me, if we are married and have children, perhaps our family has taken up the top spot. So perhaps we, we still serve God and we still remember God, but He's no longer the most treasured. And that way, we, are, we have forgotten the Lord. See, sometimes we serve God and we say we love God for as long as, we do that for as long as, it's not in conflict with our real or functional gods, our career, or, or family, or whatever that is, or reputation. As long as God is not in conflict with those then we're happy to serve God. But as soon as, as soon as they're in conflict with our functional gods, then there's tension. Then we realize that God is no longer the most treasured in our lives. So the Bible reminds us this morning, through this first point, the importance of knowledge is that do not forget the Lord who brought you out of slavery. And we shall not have other gods before Him. See, all other gods may not be a statue that we bow down, that we erected and bow down before. Our, our, our gods are functional gods. Our family, our career, our study, our intellect, our reputation, whatever. You name it. And Bildad's accusation of Job that he has forgotten God, this is the, the, the mistake that Bildad has is that he has the right theology, but he applied it incorrectly, misapplied it completely. He is in Job 8, verse 13. Let me read to you Job 8, verse 13. Such are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the godless shall perish. And that's Bildad's mistake. He accused Job of forgetting God, and the hope of the godless, like Job and his children, will perish. And we know from the context that is not right. Our second point is the limitation of knowledge. Yes, knowledge is great and it's important, but there are limitations when it comes to knowledge. And I don't think there's much convincing needed here because we have seen the example when it comes to knowledge and logic and however good that is. Education is great and I value education, but there's limitation and we've seen that in Bildad, haven't we? A clever man, a learned man, a professor perhaps, um, who knows much, 
who learned from history, who knows science, who learns from the nature, yet he missed it. There's limitation to that. So Bildad is a logical, is a logical and observant person, yet because of that, he put God in a box. So his knowledge, his logic, his understanding is his box. And God must fit in that box of his. And that's where he gets it wrong. He leaves no room, not even an inch extra for God, where God does not fit his box. For Bildad, for Bildad God must fit his understanding. If God does not meet his understanding, if God, if God does anything that does not make sense, then it's not God. So God must make sense as far as Bildad is concerned. That's, that's the box. Perhaps you, you have that box where God must make sense to you, must be logical to you. If he's not, then you can't accept it. So that's why there's a there's a, a group of Christians these days where they accept only some truth of the Bible. If um, if it makes sense, they get a tick. If it doesn't make sense, they cross it out or they rip the page off. Say that's you know that's uh, that's ancient. That's just outdated. Let's not believe in that anymore. That's the box. So Bill, that's mistake here is to value knowledge logic and tradition and even the wisdom of the ages which are all good in it, in it, in themselves but his mistake is to value them so highly that he is blindsided by their limitations so for us this morning as much as we learn about life and about the word of god and knowledge Whatever that is, whatever body of knowledge that we are so good at and, and have so much of, let that not blindsided us of its limitations this morning. Let's look at uh, two misapplications, uh, two things on how these play out. Okay, if if we um, not do not take this seriously, understand there's limitations on knowledge. What will happen? The first one is misapplication, as in Bildad towards Job. First one is misapplication. So one of Bild, Bild one of Bildad's theologies is is very popular today. I would call it uh, prosperity gospel. Some of you may not realize immediately. Some of us may not realize immediately. There's prosperity theology in Bildad's theology. But let me read to you in verse six. Bildad says, "If you are poor, Job, and upright." Surely then, he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Do you, do you see that? If you are pure and upright before God, then surely you'll be wealthy and healthy. The two things that Job has none. Right? He's no longer healthy. He's no longer wealthy. From a family point of view and from a, from a material point of view. He's poor. And he simply, what, what, what he's trying to say is, uh, see, prosperity gospel rejects the possibility that a pure and upright Christian can, uh, a, a pure and upright Christian can be poor 
and sickly. So that's prosperity theology. They don't believe if you're pure before God and you're upright and godly before God, they don't believe that you can be poor and that you can be sickly. That's a misapplication of Bildad's theology. That's prosperity theology. And this is very, very, very dangerous because it does two things. It can only, it can hurt the church and it can weaken the church. How can it hurt the church? Well, it hurts the church because if you hold this kind of theology or this gospel, prosperity gospel, you will have a second class citizen in church. Not, not everyone is equal. Right? So the second class citizen are those who are not pure enough, who are not holy enough, who are not diligent enough, who, who don't read the Bible every day, or or even if, if you are in a more educated circle, some churches are very highly consist of a lot of educated people, they say then, well, yeah, well I read I read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew, you know. So those who are second class are those who cannot read the Bible in original language, perhaps. So they start having classes. And this is dangerous. This is hurting the church because the mentality for those second class citizens are try harder. You must read the Bible more. You must pray more. You must be more generous. You must, must be more of this, more of that. This will hurt the church. And the second one is if uh, holding this prosperity theology will weaken the church. How can it weaken the church? Well, because people who believe this will crack under pressure. They will not be able to stand like Job stand in the face of suffering. When suffering comes, they will crack. Why? Because they don't have a strong foundation of the knowledge of God. They, they're so weak. They, they, they're not strong enough. They don't have the strong knowledge of who God is, the real knowledge of who God is. And because they believe in, in this false gospel. So when suffering comes, they say, I'm, I'm no good. So they would. So this is the implication, right? It weakens the church. They crack under pressure because it could be because of two, one of these two things. First, because they think they're not good. Okay? So suffering comes. They're suffering. They lost their job. Uh, they're sick. They think, okay, I'm not good enough. Uh, I'm not holy enough. I haven't served God enough. Either they think that, or secondly, they think God is not good. And this is even more dangerous. So when, when things happen to them, to their life, they think God is not good. I've served the Lord. I've read my Bible. I've been generous. Why did this thing happen to me? God must not be good. This is how it weakens the church, and this is dangerous. So we have seen the limit, first limitations of the knowledge, uh, limitation of knowledge, that is misapplications. The second one is arrogance. So the limitations of knowledge is arrogance. Let me read to you uh, again a popular verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 3. 1 Corinthians first 8, verse 1 to 3. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. We know this verse, right? This verse says, knowledge puffs up, but loves builds up. The second 
thing about the limitation of knowledge is arrogance. The Bible warns us that knowledge without love puffs up, will make us arrogant people. This is what happened to Bildad. He, he's a clever man, knowledgeable, but he lacks compassion. When he lacks compassion, when you have knowledge and you don't have compassion, you mix them together, what you get is this, you get Bildad. You get arrogance. His strength, right? Bildad's strength is his knowledge, but because of his strength, um, without compassion, without love, it becomes his weakness. Your strength and my strength can become weakness if we simply use knowledge and logic, but we have no love and compassion. So, be, But before we are quick to judge Bildad in this case, in this time, let us examine our own hearts this morning. Lest we fall into the same trap like Bildad, you know. Uh, we look down on others because we know more. We have more experience. We have more degrees. We... We, are, we have more wealth, we have more Christian education, or we have a better job, we have more money, our children are better, our parents are better, or whatever. Some even say, well, I live in a, in a good suburb, I live in a good city. we find ourselves unable to love someone because uh, another thing is because perhaps we have too much knowledge of that person this is another another dangerous thing um, have you have an experience where you know someone so much that it's hard for you to love that person I uh, reminded of uh, many occasions not just ones where I was talking to a person to someone about another person who is not in the room. I, when I say good things or, or praise that person, the one who's not in that room, the one I'm talking to start to remind me, oh, be, you can say that because you didn't know this. Let me tell you what happened to this, you know? Uh, so the idea was like, if you would know what I know about this person, you wouldn't be generous in your assessment about that person. Are you like that? Because you know so much about that person. The, the, the dirty secrets, the dirty laundry of that person. We become unloving, not compassionate towards that person. And the Bible reminded us this morning of the limitations of our knowledge. Knowledge puffs up without love without compassion. So the third thing, let me, the third thing, so the importance of knowledge, we look at that, the limitations of knowledge, and finally, we're going to look at the God of knowledge. So if knowledge and wisdom, and even the wisdom of the ages, are not enough, what, what hope do we have? What else do we need then? Well, God's revelation in our life. God's revelation, that's right. But don't get me wrong, uh, God, let me explain. I didn't mean God's revelation in the sense that God 
speaks through us through dreams or or the uh, writing in the sky. You know, some people say saw writing in the sky. Oh, God is speaking to me through that. I'm not saying that. When when I say we need God's revelation, it could be that. Does God speak through dreams? Absolutely, but. Revelation in this specific sense, in a miraculous way of revelation, should not be the common ways of how we, how how God guides us in our lives. Okay, it can happen. It it happens, but it's not the common ways that God guides us. Not through these miraculous revelations. So, what do I mean then by revelation? Is that uh, is the revelation of who God is. In the written word of God, who God revealed Himself to us in the Bible, and that's what I mean by revelation. the 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 Bible is not a book that contains God's word. The Bible itself is God's words. Okay, the Bible is God's word. God revealed Himself to us in the Bible by the Holy Spirit through the Holy Spirit. So, what does the Bible reveal to us about God, about knowledge? That, that we don't gain from, from uh, wisdom of the ages? Well, the Bible reveals to us, the written word of God reveals to us that God, not only that God is, uh, uh, not only that God gives us knowledge, but God himself is the source of knowledge. Not only that God gives us knowledge, God himself is the source of knowledge. And, and let's look at Proverbs 9. Verse 10, again, another popular verse. It says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So I'm going to look at two, two, two things here about God that has been revealed to us in the Bible. Who this God of knowledge, not only the God who gives us knowledge, but God of knowledge, He's the source of knowledge, is that first thing is God who is infinite. Remember the box? That's finite. And the God that the Bible tells us is God who is infinite. God of history is an infinite God. And if we truly believe that there is God who created the universe and is in control of everything, who has always existed before the time and for eternity long, then as created being, a limited being, as finite being, like you and me, then we must bite the bullet and accept the fact that we cannot possibly fathom all God's wisdom and all God's plan. There are God's wisdom and God's plan that we will never understood. We need to come to that realization that God is infinite and we are fin finite and we have this little box. If things happen outside that box of us, of ours, then we must accept that there are God's plan that we cannot possibly fathom, understand. Yet, uh, this let me read to you from Isaiah 55, verse 8 to 9. Isaiah 55, 8 to 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Bildad's mistake is that he uses a well-known wisdom uh, and treat it as the unbreakable truth. 
And that's his mistake. Uh, he, he believes that God is predictable, that we can learn God in a complete sense. Yes, we can know God, but not in a complete sense. He's an infinite God. And because of that, of what Bildad's believe, uh, his Bildad's God can only move within his predefined box. God cannot possibly operate outside his box. And our secular world that we live in today believes exactly like Bildad's. They believe in logic, right? Suffering equal to no God. That's what our our uh, secular world believes in. That's their logic. If they're suffering, they cannot be a good God. So for Christians to believe that there is a good God, it's a total nonsense, they would say. They would say, just look at around you. There's so much suffering in this world. There's so much injustice in this world. There cannot be a good God. That's their logic. Just like build that. If you're pure and not right, if you, you know, then God will bless you. Like prosperity theology. That logic dictates um, that, like in Bildad's case, his theology is right. He has misapplied. The reason is because he tried to put God, in his, uh, infinite God, in his finite box. So we cannot put God in our box. Regardless how wide and how well learned, how big our box is. Some of our box are really big. Our body of knowledge are huge. We have 10 degrees. We have, we have a PhD or two. But yet, it's not enough to contain the wisdom of an infinite God. And the lessons for us is this. Even to the unknown, unfathom, unfathomable plans and wisdom of God, we can still trust and obey Him. We may not understand it, but we can still obey and trust Him. So some of us may, may, may have certain things that we are questioning God. Why God like Job? Job has asked so many why questions. Perhaps we are like Job. We don't understand it. But let us trust Him. Because we are finite and He's infinite. Romans 8.28 give us a good reminder. that we know for the, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together. For good, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. It may not work out well right now, but the promise is all things work together. Everything in the end will come together for our good, for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. It may not make sense right now for you, what's happening to you, what's happening to your loved one, but trust Him. And trust his plan. So God, who is infinite, and the secondly, God who forgets. And on the one hand, we see how important uh, knowledge of God is. God wants his people to remember him. Remember that I'm your God, I'm the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. Remember, do not forget. Teach this to your children when you sit down, when you lie down, when you when you're walking around, talk to your children about this and do not forget this truth that I am the Lord God who brought you out of slavery. Remember. Yet, at the same time, 
uh, Bill Dad's high value of his knowledge and tradition has hardened his heart. And he hardened his heart towards his suffering friend. And he, he misapplied his understanding of who God is. Uh, while God says, remember me, at the same time, he's the comfort for us this morning is he is a God who forgets. It sounds contradictory. It sounds counterintuitive. I know, um, you know, how can, how can God tell us to remember yet he's the God who forgets? What do I mean by that? Well, this is what I mean. Um, let, let me read a couple of verses for you from uh, Isaiah 43, verse 25 is the first one. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. And Hebrews 8, verse 12. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more, says the Lord. And Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east from the west so far, does he remove our transgressions from us? Um, if we are to remember who God is and not confine God in a little box, yet at the same time and not be judgmental, towards others and not look down on others who are less than us, less in whatever capacity, if we are to do that, if we are to have humility, even though we have this great knowledge, the only way we can do that, if we know that He is God who forgets. He forgets our sins. He removes our sin as far as the east from the west. He blotted out our transgressions and remember it no more. If we are to appreciate the importance of knowledge and its limitation and be able to love, we must remember this, that He is God who forgets our sin. How is that possible? It's only possible through the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ on that cross. This is why the cross of Christ is so important. It's on that cross, because of that cross, our sin can be blotted out and forgotten for good. It's not just hidden, swiped under the carpet. No, it was thrown away as far as the east from the west. So if we are to live in this way, to have the knowledge, yet to have compassion and love and not be judgmental towards others and love other people, love and even applied correctly in our lives and in the suffering uh, friends of ours or even our own suffering, right? Uh, then we must hold tight the truth that He's God who forgets, who knows all about us, who knows all about truth about us, our dirty laundries, yet still love us, yet still chose to die on our behalf. And that's who God is. Let us close our eyes. And pray.